This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 27, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The case for auditing the Fed is obvious, says Cato Institute adjunct scholar Arnold Kling. We don't know how we got to where we are, and where we are is unprecedented in terms of the monetary base and the tools the Fed claims the authority to use and the sources of that authority. Kling is author of the new Cato briefing paper, The Case for Auditing the Fed is Obvious, available at Cato.org. The traditional argument for the need for independence is that the if the Federal Reserve is put under pressure, it'll be put under pressure to inflate excessively. Now, I kind of question that because the United States had an experience with inflation in the 1970s. Uh, it was very unpopular. It cost many politicians their jobs. And I think politicians remember that well enough not to be pressing the Fed for inflation, and I have not seen any signs of politicians doing that. By the same token, political actors are not independent. They are subject to people's whims, and they frequently do things that the results of which are unpopular. That is, we, over about the same time period, people... Uh, became very disenchanted with uh, the growth of government. Um, so it, it seems like the, the, the independence of uh, an institution doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's going to not engage in actions, the results of which are very unpopular. Uh, and it doesn't guarantee that the actions are not mistaken or that the actions should not be second-guessed. Uh, I don't think there's any really good reason not to evaluate what the Fed has been doing, given that what it's been doing has been so unusual and so unprecedented. So in some sense, are you arguing for reducing the independence of the Fed? Because if if the idea is to evaluate the policies that the Fed has undertaken over the past couple of years, it would seem then to, if you're judging them, uh, to perhaps invite some action that would take away some Fed independence? I think what I'm inviting is a an evaluation of what they've done that's unusual over the last two years, why they did it, and what the consequences were. Uh, and then people can look at and say, you know, should this be done again? In some sense, it's for their own benefit. I mean, they're I've worked in a company where we had an internal audit department, and the internal audit department took a very thorough look at the function that I was performing, and they said, well, it's ultimately for your benefit that we're auditing that function. And you could argue that it's ultimately for the benefit of the Federal Reserve and for all of us that their uh, decision process be audited. It shouldn't just be left... We shouldn't just say, well, whatever they did, they must know what they're doing, and therefore we shouldn't look at it. That's just a very strange way to treat anybody uh, in any uh, in a corporate setting, in a democracy, in, in anything other than a uh, dictatorship. Ron Paul has been the chief proponent uh, of auditing the Fed for a while, and I can remember a very clear exchange between him and Ben Bernanke. And Ben Bernanke said... If you want to audit our books, of course, you can do that at any time. And Ron Paul's response to that was, well, of course, it's the policies that we want to audit. Yes. the uh, And I think it's no, it's no longer Ron Paul. My sense is that there are many now in Congress who are interested. And, and I think any – what I'm surprised at is that there's not more of a clamor in academia 
to undertake an audit, considering the strange things that have been going on. When the, when the Fed doubles the size of its balance sheet, when it buys, it, it, you know, traditionally, you know, if you had your textbook monetary policy, an open market operation consisted of the Federal Reserve, this is in the textbook, buying short-term bonds in the bond market. And in fact, what it does is even kind of simpler than that. Uh, and then you would think that the next step, if you decided that short-term interest rates couldn't go any lower, might be to go out on the yield curve and maybe buy five-year bonds or 10-year treasury bonds. But these would be treasury bonds. Instead, what the Fed did was uh, it bought you know, these assets from AIG or mortgage-backed securities, things that are much riskier than it needs to buy in order to expand the money supply. So that's just that's something we ought to know about, why it was done and what its consequences were. Another thing that happened around that the, that the Fed undertook in late 2008 was that they expanded tremendously the monetary base but countered that by paying interest on reserves. Now that's a very that policy clearly raises bank profits but it has a very ambiguous effect on the money supply and the economy as a whole. And that's another thing. You know, why did they pick that moment in history to confuse the relationship between reserves and the money supply by paying interest on reserves? At some point, that creates sort of a strange feedback loop uh, for banks, certainly. Yeah, it's... You know, if you were just to give a basic exam question on a freshman macroeconomics test, what happens when you pay interest on reserves? The answer would be, well, banks will hold more excess reserves, and in fact they did, and that will contract the money supply. And you'd think of all the times in the world where you don't want to contract the money supply, it's in late 2008 when the economy is heading down. So... It's, it would be useful to understand why they picked that moment to do that, and in particular to understand what their trade-offs were between focusing on pro bank profitability and focusing on the economy as a whole. And by paying interest on reserves held by banks, it would seem that the Fed was giving itself a tool that it maybe shouldn't have otherwise had. Well, it gave itself a new tool, and it gave itself this new tool in the middle of a crisis and it would be interesting to know why why it's there. Is it something that it should be permanently there? Is it something that should have been there 10 years ago? And if it's so, why was this the moment to introduce it? I mean, there are just a lot of interesting questions about that, uh, as well as interesting questions about the securities that they ended up buying. I, I think there are potentially two theories of... Uh, of the crisis that you that they could have held at the time. One was that it was a solvency crisis, that the banks had bad assets. And another was a, just a liquidity crisis, just uh, people lost confidence for no reason. These were perfectly good securities, but people lost confidence for no reason. And all the rhetoric of the Fed has been based on that latter interpretation, the, you know, panic interpretation. And yet I think most people who look at it think that these were genuinely bad securities that uh, were structured so that they lost money in the housing crunch. The crisis really began when people who invest in housing for a living began to short it. Yeah. Well, they and the 
I think the end result has been that uh, house prices have fallen and that a lot of these securities turned out to be extremely sensitive to house prices. Uh, so one of the things you could do if you were to audit the Fed is to see how these securities performed. Cato Institute adjunct scholar Arnold Kling is author of the new briefing paper, The Case for Auditing the Fed is Obvious, available at Cato.org.